Hey guys, welcome to a special bonus episode of The Daily Churn. Today's episode is going to be very different from the usual kind of episode, which is why I'm marking it as a bonus. What it is, is that I did an interview a few weeks ago for another show called Risk of Ruin, R-U-I-N, with John. And John is someone who listens to this show and reached out to me back in, I think, December or November to see if I'd be interested in doing an interview about lean fire and churning because he does a show centered around gambling and life, you know, just people who have chosen paths that involve some of the elements of gambling and how they live their lives, which on the surface at first I was thinking the same thing you probably are, which is that I don't think we necessarily think of churning and and fire as gambling. But there are these shared elements, I think, of like risk and reward and problem solving and hustling that are an inherent part of gambling, but aren't unique to gambling, which is why the guests that he has interviewed have ranged from poker players to card counters, but also stockbrokers and natural gas commodity traders. And now I guess someone who's done lean fire and does a churning podcast. And on my end, I was pretty excited to do the interview because, as you guys know, this show is very focused on specific topics each week, whether that's a loyalty program or a monthly recap. And there really is no, I guess, fluff beyond that. And I think folks appreciate that because then these episodes aren't two hours long. They're like 30 minutes long and very much to the point. But the flip side of that is that there really isn't much discussion about sort of the backstory, I guess, on some of the things I've done. You know, how did I end up getting into fire? Why we ended up firing? How did I get into churning? How I ended up in jail in Japan? What's my accent from? I mean, these are questions that I get in messages on Reddit and Telegram and via email and I respond to, but they never make it into the show because I do try and keep that very focused. And so this was sort of my opportunity to kind of share my background a little bit on another show because John's show has a very different format. It's probably like the polar opposite of this show because his is more of a documentary storytelling style where it really dives into the people and the history and how their minds work and how they got to where they are now and what do they do and all of that stuff which really wouldn't fit into my show. That's sort of actually why I'm adding this intro because otherwise I think you would probably assume you clicked the wrong podcast. But I'm hoping some folks who have been curious about my background will find this interesting. And John did an amazing job with the episode. You know, we interviewed for, I think, almost three hours, two hours, and he managed to cut it down to 47 minutes and make it sound like a cohesive story instead of just my incoherent rambling. So really good job, John. And uh, yeah, Guys, hope you enjoy it and be sure to check out some of John's other episodes. I'll put a link to his show in the show notes and I'll let John take over. It was kind of fucked up that I felt like I was on vacation in jail. Like there was stress from being in jail, but just the huge weight of not having to work being lifted from my shoulders far exceeded the jail stress. And that was sort of uh, when I made the decision to wind down the company. I told my partners after I I got back that, you know, I just, yeah, I needed to do something else. 
Risk of Ruin is a podcast about gambling and life and their intersection. I'm John Reeder. This is episode 22, The Game-Like Aspect. Let's start with a brief summation of what we've covered so far. Through 21 episodes, we've heard from a variety of people who have the following things in common. They have made unconventional life choices, pursuing esoteric careers, and in those careers, they solve puzzles for profit. So we're talking about gambling, but when I rephrase it in that way, you can see the common thread that runs through each show. That thread is also going to show up in this episode because our guest, Kai, has made some uncommon choices, and he also has the type of mind that will seem familiar. And I guess just hustling, I would probably define it as just seeing opportunities that other people miss and acting on that. And that's something I try and apply to every aspect of my life, not consciously, just it sort of happens. And if I had to like give myself a, a, like a category of like what is my superpower, that would probably be my superpower is just the, the that kind of a, a drive and you know you can kind of with any superpower use it for good or for evil i think and when i was younger the hustle was definitely all about just making money websites like doctor of credit offer a never ending stream of information about things like bank bonuses and credit card offers you know $700 to open an hsbc account or $500 to open a new brokerage account with tastyworks Kai's specific version of hustling is to exploit those bonuses. Instead of opening one account and deciding he really likes the way they do business down at First Federal Credit Union, Kai churns through accounts. I calculated all the things that I would consider quote-unquote churns, and that totaled to be 77 churns over about six months, and that's comprised of about 26 bank accounts, let's see, or 17 brokerages, nine credit cards and the rest were just random things like cashback and buying groups and cell phones and swag bucks and things like that. But yeah, there's just, there's just always tons of opportunities as long as you kind of broaden your scope out a little bit from just doing credit cards. It's fair to wonder if hustlers are born or if they're made. In Kai's case, it's not exactly clear. He might be predisposed to this kind of thing, although he might have also been conditioned for it. My family immigrated to England when I was five years old. A uh, typical immigrant story of money was hard to come by, jobs were hard to come by. And at 11 years old, my dad got me a paper round. And just to preface this, a paper round in England is, is like hardcore. I mean, it's you start at 6am, you're given this massive bag with about 50 papers. And before school, you have about two hours to deliver all of these papers. And this is like British weather, right? So it's, it's cold, it's often raining, and at 6 a.m. it's dark, and you're 11 years old with this massive bag on your back. I got hit by a car, I think, twice, three times while doing this paper round, um, even with lights on my bike. And so it was, it was pretty brutal, but I think my dad's goal was to be like, hey, this is the value of hard work and money, and that did stay with me. But another thing also came about through that, which was that as I was working that job, um, I saw that there were people in the newsagent, which a newsagent, for those not familiar, is just like a, a convenience store. 
that sells newspapers and other things. Um, there were kids in the news agent, two, sometimes three of them, who stayed indoors the whole time and they would mark the addresses on the papers. So they never had to physically leave the store in the cold and deliver anything. They stayed in where it was warm and they were called markers because they, they marked uh, the addresses. And to be a marker, you had to have experience on all the routes. And there were like 14 different routes. And so you had to have memorized for the most part, the addresses on all these routes. Like this is like almost a thousand addresses so that you could mark very quickly. And uh, I got it in my head that I'm like, I want to be the marker. I don't want to be out there delivering papers. And so as quick as I could, I try to get put on every single route and learn it. And when that happened, a couple other things came up, which was that uh, I realized that in order to actually mark, because there was quite a few older boys who naturally over time, you sort of just pick up all the routes. In order to be a marker, it was a first come first serve system. So whoever showed up at the news agent first, and there's only two, three slots to be a marker on a given day would be the marker. And so I would get up at 4am in the morning and just bike to the news agent and wait outside in the cold for an hour because he didn't open till 5am. I would actually sort of be his alarm clock. So I would knock on his door at 5am. I'd hear him upstairs, flush the toilet, make his way down. And my goal was just to beat out every other boy who showed up. And eventually they just stopped trying to compete with me. You know, they would end up showing at 6am because they knew they weren't going to come at 4am and try and like become a marker because I was always going to take one of the slots. And so I think that sort of reinforced in me from an early age that working harder will result in rewards. Kai went to college and then got his first job in the worst economy that anyone can remember. Out of college, I started as a IT consultant at a, a pretty big company and the first project I got put on was actually uh, just a half a billion dollar massive project. And it was just an absolute shit show. But I was out of college and this was, uh, let's see, 2008-ish post Great Recession. So most of us were just happy to have a job at that point. Like I knew people in school that had their job offers revoked as the recession hit. So just glad to be employed. But it's definitely one of those, uh, it almost felt like college hazing being on that project because it was so large and so over budget and it was just a complete mess and their solution was to throw more people at it and i was one of those people along with like a hundred other analysts my age straight out of school so you can kind of uh imagine the the culture that was there it was very much like work hard play hard and honestly like to this day some of my best friends are still from that original project but um, it wasn't a great place to to work. And I was doing that for about a year or two. And one of the things that came out of that, though, was that I, I met a guy who sat next to me doing the same kind of work as me. And for the longest time, I thought was working at the same company as me. But as we got to know each other, I realized that he was actually uh, an independent consultant. He was working for himself directly with the client. And that was super appealing to me because he didn't have to deal with any of the like the bureaucracy of doing quarterly performance reports, annual reviews, none of that stuff, which is great. But the uh, the really shocking thing to me at the time was that I discovered that he was making five times how much I was getting paid for doing exactly the same work. There was an inefficiency in the way IT people were paid, and Kai figured he should at least be on the good side of that inefficiency. 
But uh, I reached out to an old client who I had a good relationship because the the client hated the company because they were doing such a poor job, but they liked us because they saw how hard we were working. You know that we were. It wasn't our fault that the execs had overpromised this this massive project. And so I reached out and I was just like, "Hey, you know, if you uh, ever want more warm bodies on this project, I'm happy to come work for you guys directly as a consultant." And, uh, you know, I can be the fly on the wall in your meetings where you guys are sort of getting bulldozed by this big company, right? And so I can kind of, I have experience working with them and I know how they work and I can call out some of their bullshit. And uh, surprisingly, they were like, yeah, can you come like immediately? And so I gave my two weeks notice. And at the ripe old age of 23, I became an independent consultant and overnight, started making five times what I was making literally like two weeks before. And that sort of just snowballed from there where being an independent consultant means you have your own little company that you can contract through. And the client was like, do you have anyone like you? Like you're doing a great job. Can we clone you? I was like, yeah, you can sort of clone me by the sense that I've worked with other people in the same company like myself who have similar experiences. If you like, I can reach out did that and ended up hiring some of my old friends and colleagues to work. And that was sort of the beginning of uh, the consulting firm that I started. Some people get satisfaction from jobs they enjoy. And some people get fulfillment from jobs that help others. But what if you kind of don't really see the point for anyone involved? Just over the years, I started to grow so jaded of just the whole consulting industry. Because if you're not familiar with it, it's very much just a smoke and mirrors game you know you're, you're kind of like a car car salesman where you go in and you just have to kind of sell your skills oftentimes you end up over promising and then scrambling later to actually deliver the things that you promised before nothing we delivered was really even tangible a lot of these projects are like project management or support for some kind of testing thing And so I grew tired of that from the consulting side. And then on the business side, as the company was growing, it became more and more tedious in the sense that it would just, it felt like to me, like tax day every day. And what I mean by that is we were just submitting proposal after proposal. And those are just 100 page long binders of just Word documents and it was like, you know, our clients were mainly government agencies. So everything was slow and very bureaucratic, just sort of just like zero mental stimulation, but just churning out all of this paperwork because that's how you make more money. And I kind of just reached the end of my limit with that and wanted something different, something more tangible. And I kind of thought that like, hey, maybe it was the whole consulting thing that was not the right fit for me, you know? Um, So let's try something else. And I sold my stake in the company to my, my partners and decided to go do my own startup. If you took away the human tendency toward hubris and overconfidence, I'm not sure that any business would ever get started. New businesses are born when founders wildly underestimate the problem to be solved, then get a painful and sometimes expensive education. Maybe if they're lucky and hardworking and very stubborn, they might come out the other side. But this raises an interesting point. Because whereas overconfidence might be a weakness on its own, if you pair it with tenacity, things get pretty interesting. I couldn't afford a developer, but I'd taken some coding classes back in high school and I was like, I could 
probably do this myself. I, I'm a total optimist. So I was like, this would maybe three, six months, I could t- teach myself how to code and uh, yeah, build my own prototype. So I did. I, I taught myself some Ruby, Rails, some basic uh, JavaScript frameworks, taught myself how to code, but it ended up taking like two years, not the three to six months that I was I was hoping for. And the first thing I built was uh, like looking back, just absolute crap. I mean, it. Uh, I would like say it's maybe you can think of it as a, a sailboat that's sort of held together by band-aids. Like it worked, but it was barely functional. Kai's project actually got some attention on Reddit, although it didn't become a business. But through that project, he met two other people who wanted to do a startup, and one of them was an actual developer, which meant they could build a real product. So a company was launched, and they were just in time for a worldwide pandemic. Weirdly, though, our company was actually already perfectly set up for the pandemic because we were already fully remote. And we were a payment processing company, so the business actually exploded. Like More people were buying things online, which meant we were making more money. And now I was working even more than I was working before. And so like on the one hand, you can maybe think of that as a positive, but I just was not happy. Just I think I didn't realize it at the time, but I was just so burnt out from, from working that much. And the second thing that happened at exactly the same time was that uh, myself and some friends had taken a trip to Japan. We went to Naseko, which is this a beautiful snowboarding resort. So if anyone who's into snow and skiing and snowboarding, Naseko is sort of like the holy grail of snowboarding for like um, for snow because they have just the best fluffy powder snow. And the Hyatt has just opened a park Hyatt there. And being a Hyatt guy, I am always trying to visit the latest park Hyatt. And so. It was an amazing trip, amazing hotel, booked everything on points. Um, the mistake, though, that I made was I, I rented a car in Japan, and I generally like to travel everywhere and rent cars because I, I enjoy driving. That probably was just not the best idea to do in Tokyo, and I ended up in a traffic accident. Luckily, no one was hurt, but the legal system is just very different there, and um, I ended up spending four days in jail in Japan. And my wife was just freaking out because again, in Japan, it's very different. There's no contact and she's a pessimist. And so she very much thought I was going to be in jail forever. And, uh, you know, just the whole stress of being in a foreign country and, and experiencing that. But my point though, was that the craziest part of that experience though, was that in those four days that I was in jail, it felt like the first real vacation that I'd taken in years. There was no cell phones, no laptops, no work. Like I, I'd gone on many, many vacations over the last you know decade. Really nice places. We'd be on beaches. I'd be in a hot tub, but I'd be on my laptop in the hot tub, and I was always working. This is the first time where that literally wasn't an option. And instead, I just hung out with like my cellmate, who happened to be this ex-accuser guy who was really actually very nice, and we we still keep in touch, but. We were just chit-chatting about how much we missed our wives and he'd been in there for like eight months without any charges because in Japan, they can hold you indefinitely without charges, which is part of why my wife was, was so freaked out. Lots of people discover that they don't actually want the thing they're chasing. But Kai's story is somewhat unique because when he had an epiphany, he actually did something about it. Action is always the hardest part of the epiphany process. 
Anyway, Kai's legal situation in Japan worked itself out, and then he spent the rest of 2020 coming up with a plan to retire. He and his wife are relatively young, but fire or financial independence, retire early, has become increasingly popular. FIRE is sort of like all the personal finance advice you've probably heard, but on steroids. The admonitions about spending, saving, and investing get dialed up because there are stakes involved. Instead of chasing the ambiguous goal of quote-unquote financial health, there's an actual finish line. Can you get your spending and your savings aligned so you can leave work decades early? But it's not one-size-fits-all. Kai is following a version called Lean Fire, which focuses on really crunching down the spending and then also adding in some supplementary income. Figuring out this early retirement would be hard, because if your calculations have a small mistake, multiplying it by 60 years is going to turn that minor error into a big one. Fortunately, there are a lot of websites to help. One resource Kai relied on was a blog written by a PhD economist. So he's done a ton of modeling, and he modeled that with a 60-year retirement window, that 4% withdrawal rate has a 10% chance of failure. So one in 10 chance that you run out of money in that window, which, I mean, being an optimist, I probably was like, okay, that's worth a gamble. But my, my wife was not comfortable with that 10% chance at all. And so the way to increase your odds are to is to just lower your withdrawal rate. You take less money out. And so that's where that 3% rate comes in. And he, this early retirement now guy, he goes by big earn. He has like a 50 plus part safe withdrawal series. Like he has over 50 posts uh, detailing exactly all of his calculations. And that was a huge help for us because it helped us assess and give us strategies to minimize some of the risk. So one of the biggest risks for FIRE is this thing called sequence of returns risk. And essentially what that is, is based on when you're withdrawing money, you may be at you may be more prone to going bankrupt or less prone for example like if in the first 5 years of retirement the market just tanks that really messes up your ability to like safely withdraw money for the next let's say 60 years because you're withdrawing money in those first 5 years from a severely depleted portfolio and it becomes extremely difficult later on to then make up those gains because you're at a lower starting point and so what Big Earn really did was that he modeled out a, a, a model that is called the glide path model, specifically built to hedge against this sequence of returns risk, because that is your biggest risk. And what the glide path model is, is that you essentially allocate between stocks and bonds at a higher rate towards these stable assets like bonds and cash and gold early on in those first five or 10 years. And so having that heavier weighting, you then slowly glide into a 100% stock portfolio after your 5, 10 years. And what that does is if there's a crash in those first few years, you're withdrawing money from stable assets that haven't depreciated as much versus withdrawing money from a depleted stock portfolio. Part of Kai's lean fire plan is to offset some of their spend through churning. Every dollar he earns equals more cushion in his retirement account. Every bonus extends the runway a little. But he didn't get started in this stuff with the idea it would be a retirement plan. His introduction to the world of points was pretty traditional. The original starting point for me was just earning points and miles that 
the traditional way, you know, back in 2010, when I was traveling for work, I was just staying at uh, hotels for five days of the week and flying to a different location. And, you know, this was like post 2008 recession. So there was a ton of really amazing deals because they were trying to attract customers. So I ended up getting top tier status with like Hyatt, Hilton, SPG, which is now Marriott, uh, United 1K, all of that good stuff. But after I quit and started my own firm, we were mostly local. And so there was no more OPM travel and OPM like on Flyer Talk stands for other people's money. So there was no more travel on other people's money. And I was paying for my own travel myself. And uh, I guess coincidentally around that time, Chase Sapphire or Chase released their Sapphire preferred card with a really good bonus. And I saw that you can transfer Chase points over to Hyatt and United, which are two of the uh, the airlines and hotels that I really liked. And I guess the, the rest is history from there, from how I got into churning. Most credit card points can be turned into cash. But if you're willing to use the points on travel, they have outsized value. You could turn 150,000 points into $1,500 in cash, or you could turn it into airline tickets worth 15,000. It's really just allowed my wife and I to, to travel the world. Like we've flown first class, stayed at some of the best hotels. We've gone scuba diving in the Maldives multiple times, snowboarded in Japan. Let's see, gone clubbing in Berlin, been to Hawaii more times than I can count. And these are like vacations that would cost ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 each. And we would take that multiple times a year for free. And so that aspect of it makes me super grateful, you know, for the whole churning experience because it's allowed us to do that. Because otherwise, like I'm trying to think what the income level would have to be for me to be comfortable just dropping $20,000 on a vacation. And I'd probably like have to be making $500,000 plus a year to just be like, yeah, let's go on a $20,000 vacation. But at making $500,000, the amount of stress involved in your job to be making that amount of money is just immense. And I would not pursue that personally. And so churning has really like allowed us to do these things without having to undertake the, the kind of sacrifices you have to make to, to really get to that level of income. It's easy enough to open a new credit card and get the sign-up bonus that comes with it. That's very low-hanging fruit. And it's based on the idea that marketing spend provides a form of edge. But Kai takes that paradigm and applies it wherever he can. I think churning as a term is probably pretty broad. I think it started with just credit cards, opening credit cards and getting the bonuses. And it's since then just sort of covered a variety of different things like bank bonuses and then brokerage bonuses. Some aspects I think of, of travel hacking, like booking award travel, has that kind of like creative use and acquisition of points that's pretty close to, if not the same as like the kind of churns that you would do. Then there's like some things that I do that are a bit more out there, like um, like meal kits. They have really good offers on meal kits all the time. And you can essentially churn those by just opening up new accounts and just getting meals delivered to you for just extremely cheap and just going through the various meal kit plans like Blue Apron, Green Chef, HelloFresh, all of that stuff. And that works really well with the whole Lean Fire thing because you want to cut down food costs is one of the priorities. But there's also things like cell phones and SIM cards that I recently started trying where you can get cell phone service for easily under $15 a month. And that includes sometimes unlimited data, whereas we were before paying $200 plus for our Verizon service. And so that really 
cut costs and there's a way to churn these SIM cards where you're always just using these new offers that come around. Same with cell phones. You can buy like the brand new iPhone 13 for three to $600 below retail and resell that on Swappa. And then um, the funniest one actually is most recently treasury bonds have been a hot topic and it showed up on Doctor of Credit. And about a week ago, I was just browsing slick deals and treasury bonds are now on the front page of slick deals. And because you're doing these bank bonuses, you often have money parked and ready to use in order to qualify for some of those bonuses. And so having a good high interest savings checking account is good. Or if you just need like emergency cash or if you're just parking cash in the case of fire, uh, treasury bonds right now are like 7%. And so that's better than most high interest savings and checkings account that that I usually go for. And Doctor of Credit also has just a massive list of high yield checking savings accounts. So I think that's the most fringe case, I think, of what you might consider churning. But the whole churning thing, I think, is more of a mentality versus like a specific activity. You know, I think it's more about finding deals and, and workarounds and just sort of being creative with your hustle. And then it's up to you how you channel that energy, whether it's free luxury travel or supplemental income or if you want, you can try and make six figures churning. You know, some people do that too. But for us, it's really just sort of a, a way to buffer and de-risk this whole lean fire thing that we're trying. Kai has a podcast called The Daily Churn, where he details his monthly churning successes and also breaks down the various loyalty programs he uses. For example, he'll make one episode where he recaps every account he opened for the month and how much cash it generated. Then he'll do other episodes explaining how to maximize the Southwest Companion Pass or Hyatt Globalist or National Car Rentals Executive Status. Programs with excess value to be harvested. The thing I like about Kai's show is that he has the command of detail that can only be acquired through experience. The more you tell me not to do something generally makes me want to try harder And so particularly with churning related things, when things don't go as planned, which happens all the time, and that happens in travel hacking as well, you know, like you're trying to book a flight, it gets booked up or you mess up a point transfer and that kind of stuff just makes me want to go harder and uh, try and just dive deeper and figure out exactly what went wrong and and find alternative ways of getting it done. And, And that's how I've been able to find some things that aren't like regularly talked about because I... I, I do read a lot of blogs. Like the main one, I think, is Doctor of Credit. Uh, that's sort of the Bible for the churning com- community. Um, there's also a bunch of you know private groups on Telegram and Facebook and Discord and Slack and all that good stuff. And um, there's also that churning subreddit. But a lot of the good things aren't necessarily posted publicly. And a lot of the things that I found that make good money, I've just stumbled upon myself while just smacking my head against it until I got something to work. One of Kai's non-obvious strategies has to do with bank bonuses. The banks are smart enough to put up roadblocks for would-be exploiters, but that just sends Kai looking for ways around the roadblocks. With bank accounts, the easy ones tend to be like, hey, US Bank is going to give you $500 for depositing $4,000 with them. And so you literally just open account, send them $4,000 like from your Chase account, and a month or two later, you get your $500 back. And so that's pretty straightforward, but where it gets a little bit complicated sometimes, and 
quite a few banks require this is they want the direct deposit to be from an employer, like an actual employer direct deposit, not just you going to your Chase account and sending $4,000 into this US bank account. And so with those employer direct deposits, it gets a little tricky because especially if you're someone like me doing the fire thing, or if you just work for yourself, you know, a lot of people don't have employers that can do uh, this, this, don't have employers that qualify for this direct deposit. And so one of the workarounds is using Square or Gusto, essentially a payroll provider to simulate employee employer direct deposits. And this was something I stumbled across just reading doctor of credit comments and sort of just kind of expanded on and actually did a dedicated episode on my podcast on. But essentially what you do is you open up Square and you pay yourself as a contractor. So it qualifies because Square is legitimately used to pay people for payroll. And so that way you can avoid the issue of not being able to split your payroll or not having an employer. And that allows you to qualify for a lot of these bank bonus deals that require this. And I'd say probably more than 50% of bank bonuses require that you have a real employer. Turners also specialize in finding patterns that repeat. They look for any opportunity to turn credit card spend into cash so they can turn around and pay off their credit card bill while still earning the points. It's like the hustler's version of a perpetual motion machine. And there are various forms that these opportunities might take. But once you've seen one, you know what to look for. As recently as I think a month or two ago, but when it first started, it was maybe early last year, there was a company called Stockpile and you can buy gift cards for stocks. So you buy a gift card and you can then redeem that gift card for any stock that you want. The interesting thing with Stockpile is that for a while, they were letting people buy these gift cards using credit cards, which like never happens because there's transactions fees involved with the company in order to allow you to use credit card transactions. But they were allowing it and it was allowed, they were permitting up to $10,000 per day of gift cards with a credit card up to a $25,000 annual limit. And I think that was when I found it. Before then, I think the limits were even higher. But essentially, you would just go and use one of the credit cards that you're trying to get minimum spend on. And if you think about $25,000, that's probably minimum spend on four or five credit cards. Like, you know, it's pretty common for a credit card to give you 100,000 points for spending $5,000, right? So four or five credit cards worth of spend, you just go buy a gift card and cash it in for like a really stable ETF so that you don't lose money. Because the goal isn't for you to actually be in the stock market. It's just to buy the gift card, cash it into stock, then sell those stocks. And now you have cash that you can transfer to your bank account and pay the credit card. And so that was probably the easiest spend that I, I can remember in recent history of just five minutes of work. And you've got literally just five credit cards worth of bonuses coming in. They say that nothing lasts forever. And that's especially true of loopholes like this one. So someone posted on there that Stockpile had removed uh, credit card transaction fees. And so Doctor of Credit DOC is just one of the best sites for posting pretty much everything. And so you do have to keep your eye out because within literally, I think, a day or two of that being posted and people in the comments talking about it, it was reduced from 10000 I think, down to 1000 And now it's down to, I think, $100. 
a day that you can buy using a credit card. So these things do get shut down very quickly once the word spreads. If very few people know about an edge, then it has a chance of hanging around. But if a lot of people find out, then it's going to get hammered and die. So you can see where information sharing gets complicated. It's almost like a microcosm of human cooperation. We need to be able to rely on information sharing so we're not alone, but we also have to be selfish sometimes. There's two different camps, I think. There's one camp that's like, um, we should try and share everything publicly and and help the community because, you know, like you want other people to make money as well. But then there's also the reality of things being shared and then dying pretty quickly. It doesn't necessarily really happen on like an individual basis. So if I discovered something and I hammer it, um, my volume alone, unless I go super, I mean, I'd have to go really crazy for for that to be the reason it got shut down. But it's usually when it gets shared more and multiple people are hammering it. That's when things start to uh, get closed off. And it's part of the reason why the churning subreddit has sort of gone private in a sense. Like if you've used Reddit before, they have an algorithm where the top posts get filtered to the top and it's a really nice algorithm for, for surfacing content. But back when Chase released some of their cards, that community experienced it firsthand where too many things were getting killed off too quickly. And so they sort of went pseudo private where they've now each day, they'll just post one post and you have to dig into the comments to really have any kind, see any kind of discussions. Um, so different places, I think have had different strategies. Some groups have just gone entirely private. Some groups have added a paywall. So you need to pay in order to be part of the community. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a constant battle, I think, with, with credit cards and, and banks trying to close off some of the bigger loopholes. Churning presents an interesting optimization problem because you can spend time on known edges where there's no question as to how much it's worth. But if you only go after obvious stuff, you can miss something more valuable. Kai has to strike a balance between exploitation and exploration. Especially with things like Doctor of Credit, they post every single deal that's available, ranging from a dollar to two dollars, all the way to thousands of dollars. And so, yeah, filtering through that list can be a lot sometimes. But for me, I definitely do just look at it as how much time is it potentially going to take me to do this, and what is the reward at the end. And if it's not worth it, I try not to do it. But at the same time, you don't always know necessarily going in that something might not be worth it because things don't always pan out as you hoped. Like most recently, I churned uh, iPhone 13s, like uh, cell phones, because there was this really good deal where Best Buy was offering $600 in trading credit towards an iPhone 13 if you traded in an iPhone 12. And Walmart at the same time was selling iPhone 12 minis for $300. So you could literally go to Walmart, buy a $300 iPhone, give it to Best Buy, they'll give you $600 off the iPhone 13, and then you can then sell the iPhone 13 or stack that because Costco was also giving you a credit for, I think, $300 worth of Costco shopping credit in it to open a T-Mobile line. So you can also open a T-Mobile line at the same time and do that. And so I did that a couple times and uh, it did not work out as planned because reselling iPhones, the market fluctuates. And I ended up only making about $100 or $200 off of the phone, but it required me going to Costco, Walmart, Best Buy, and so in hindsight, like I would rather sit on my couch and do a bank bonus for $200 than go through all that effort. Because if you're reselling an iPhone, you're also now 
packaging, shipping, <laughs> doing all of that stuff in addition. So a lot of like manual physical work required for the same amount of money as a bank bonus would have been. And so again, though, you, sometimes you have to try things to really know how much time it would take. But time really is the, the, the key driver for, for the things that I choose to do. There's a pitfall in doing this stuff that's easy to imagine. All of the bonuses come with terms and conditions. You have to check every box in order to qualify. So if you're supposed to deposit $1,000 and leave it for 90 days, but you absentmindedly withdraw it after 80 days, you've just wasted all the time you had into it. That makes organization a minimum skill to play the game. Luckily for me, a big part of like any consultant's job is to do spreadsheets. So I definitely have my 10,000 hours uh, logged for doing spreadsheets. And so I, I track all the credit card bonuses, uh, the end dates, the open dates, when I need to cancel them by or downgrade or call in for a retention offer. I track which bank bonuses I'm going for, when I submitted the direct deposit, because that's usually what qualifies you for some of these bonuses. And then follow-up dates for when I need to call them if things don't post correctly. So I, I do track the minutia of it all. And I don't mind it because using a spreadsheet is sort of second nature to me, but I know it's not for a lot of people. And if yeah, if if it, it's one of the worst things that you can do in churning is if you like are late on a credit card payment, for example, because you forgot that they're gonna charge you an annual fee. And if you're late on that payment and it gets logged with the credit bureaus, your credit score goes down, which is like the last thing that you want, right? Usually it's the reverse effect if you do churning properly is your credit score. Like both my wife and I are in the high 800s now. And um, it didn't used to be when I started. I was like in the 600s. So churning has that benefit. But if you don't manage it correctly, it does come with, with that kind of a, a cost. I think there are probably a lot of people who would hear what Kai is saying and their eyes would glaze over. You know, they're out. It sounds complicated. Uh, you know, there's a new season of Outer Banks on Netflix, so things are pretty busy right now. And, you know, thanks, but no thanks. But for Kai, this stuff is fun. The enjoyable aspects of it, though, are that it very much feels like solving a puzzle. And the nice, the reason I think it feels like solving a puzzle and very game-like in that sense is that it has a very similar reward structure to a puzzle or a game. You know, there's set rules, there's a challenge, and there's a tangible reward at the end. In this case, it's financial, which makes it even better. So like, instead of sitting at home solving a crossword puzzle, I do this instead and I get paid for it. And so there's the component of creative problem solving that I find mentally stimulating. I mean, one of the big reasons why I stopped the whole consulting firm thing was that the work had just it felt like I, my mind was rotting away because I was getting zero stimulation, you know? And so I, I do like that component of churning where you're sort of like figuring out a system and how to work within and around the system. And, you know, it's like, yeah, loyalty programs have that. If you're travel hacking is another word for it. And even other things like coding, starting your business, even Lean Fire has like some of that that kind of uh, game-like components that I enjoy. I wondered if it might be possible to actually run out of accounts to open. But Kai pointed out that the current climate is a churner's dream. Growth companies have no choice but to start with a war chest of marketing dollars. You, you can run out of the big banks like the you know, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, US Bank and stuff. 
And even then, sometimes they set limits where it's like, after a couple of years, you can open another account and qualify again. So in that sense, there's a cycle. But if you hit it really hard, yeah, you can run out of these big banks to go for. But what's happening now in the industry is that we're in a fintech boom. Like every week, every day, new little fintech startups are opening and giving bonuses for you to join them. And right now, like there are more fintech company banks, and these are just like apps, right, that you download. So, and they're using accounts from one of the big banks, but they're the ones, the fintech company is the one providing the bonus using their venture capital money. And so there's essentially right now, like an infinite number of these fintech banks. And that that could change in the future. But I think just with the way things are going, like financially with crypto and all this other stuff, like there's just going to be more and more of these little small banks and they always need to attract customers and they have VC money to burn. So yeah, I don't see it dying off in the foreseeable future. Kai says that he also approaches lean fire as a puzzle to be solved. And churning is one of the puzzle pieces, which means that it is subject to some constraints. It needs to generate income, but it can't be all consuming because again, he's supposed to be retired. I try not to spend more than 10, 15 hours a week churning. And as a result, I don't make as much money. Like I make somewhere between $1,500 to $2,000 a month doing churning. Now, if I were to go full out and make it a 40-hour a week job, um, yeah, I could easily easily be making $5,000 a month doing this. But for me, you know, one of the, the quickest ways to start hating a hobby is to turn it into a job. And I'm really like actively trying not to because I do see opportunities for it all the time and some of the folks that go hard on churning and have made it a full-time job i personally know people making six figures a year doing only churning and that's when you start getting into some of the riskier methods where the banks might actually catch on because you're doing such high volume and they may shut down your accounts so even though kai is down the rabbit hole looking for obscure ways to get edges from bonuses he is still trying to maintain some balance. Also, he has a lot of other things on his to-do list. I mean, I think we all sort of know someone who's retired and then a year later, they're right back at work. And that just it happens because I think you've spent so much of your time only doing work that when you leave work, it's like, oh, I have to just hang out with my wife all day and I have literally nothing to do. And there's posts on the Fire subreddit of people like, I'm really... I fired and I'm just really unhappy and I think I might go back to work. And so there's definitely that initial panic. And that happened for us when we first fired of just like, what am I going to do? Because I've just been so conditioned now to chase deadlines, to cram my day with tasks and never stop or you feel like you're failing, you know, those things like very real and they, they definitely set in. And luckily for us, like, we quickly, we had our month or two of relaxation, but then moved on to things that we were passionate about. And luckily, you know, we had many interests already outside work. And that was one of the reasons why we wanted to fire was because we just realized we didn't have time to do any of the things that we actually wanted to do. Like my wife loves being around animals. So she started working part-time at a barn just purely for fun. And myself, you know, I started a a churning podcast and I, I churn as well. And yeah, it's uh, the other thing that we both are actively trying to do is part of our fire plan is to do the whole homesteading thing. So we bought a little bit of land and we want to grow our own vegetables and raise chickens, a couple horses and 
build a barn and solar panels and all that stuff. Like we're living in a cabin right now. So there's no AC. There's sort of just like an endless list of, of things to do. So luckily the boredom aspect of it didn't really affect us so much. Kai's story is interesting because it shines a light on the complicated relationships we can have with work and boredom and money. It's not that he doesn't want to work. Actually, he's working on a lot of stuff. Also, he's doing something that would be boring for a lot of people, but it's fun for him. And it's not that he doesn't have a use for money. He just wants to earn it on his terms. Kai's time as a consultant and starting businesses taught him something about the role that money could play in his life. The, the end result was that we finally realized that money was not bringing us happiness, which, you know, it's very cliche, but it's one of those things that's pretty hard to internalize until you experience it. Like you can't tell somebody flipping burgers at McDonald's that like, hey, money's not going to make you happier. Like they'll tell you to go fuck yourself, right? So it's one of those things where once it sort of is like a, you have to live it to really fully comprehend it. And it was getting to a point where just like more money for us was actually creating more problems, more stress. And just at 21, though, none of that mattered to me, right? At 21, I didn't care what job I was doing. Uh, as long as you paid me well, I would do anything. But as I got older, I think I started to just value time and freedom more. And part of that was because I think when you're younger, you don't realize that the higher you rise at anything you do, whether that's working for another company or doing your own business, the more stress and more bullshit you have to deal with. Risk of Ruin is written and produced by me. Special thanks to Kai for giving us a window into the world of churning and lean fire. I'm going to put a link to Kai's podcast, The Daily Churn, in the show notes. I highly recommend it if you're looking for explainers on how he actually does this stuff. To get in touch with the show, you can send us an email, riskofruinpod at gmail.com, or follow us on Twitter, at Half Kelly.